Hey, this is week two of our series in Galatians, where we are just walking through the the different chapters of the book of Galatians. And so last week was chapter one, all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and kind of continuing in that vein today, uh, Paul is defending the gospel again, this time <laughs> against a very famous uh, leader in the church. So let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to start in verse 11 this week, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, But when Cephas, which is Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here we have Paul confronting Peter, who, by the way, is the leader of the church, Jesus, from his own mouth, said, Peter, I'm going to build my rock upon the confession that you have that I am the Messiah. I mean, this is, this is drama right here. You know, you got a guy, he said, I opposed him to his face. I called him out. I called him on the carpet. And I just want to say about the gospel, you know, the gospel is confrontational. The gospel is confrontational. And it takes a lot of courage from Paul, and it takes a lot of humility from Peter in this moment to receive what Paul is saying. I mean, can you imagine the nerve of Paul and the humility of Peter? So Paul comes to Peter, opposes him to his face, and I just want to say biblical confrontation is necessary, and it's right, and it takes courage and humility, right? Courage from the one who's confronting, humility to receive it. And here's the truth. We all, at times, need to be confronted. Now, we don't like to hear that, but we all, at times, need to be confronted, every single one of us. Here's my question to you today. Who has permission to confront you? Who can tell you that you're out of step with the gospel? Because that's what Paul is saying to Peter. Paul said, dude, you're out of step with what we're teaching. You're living in hypocrisy right now. And uh, let me just say, this is not my deputization as a pastor for everyone to go around and be the holiness police and start calling out one another. I don't think the Holy Spirit needs any help doing his job. He knows how to confront people when people need to be confronted. But Paul, as an apostle, had the right and the responsibility to confront Peter. And as far as we know, Peter received it. Now, Peter could have gotten very defensive. I don't know who you think you are, Paul, who do you think you are, Paul, to come and talk to me? I walked with Jesus for three years. Where were you at, Paul? He picked me personally. Where were you at, Paul? While you were out persecuting the church of Jesus for the last several years, I've been working my butt off, laying my life down for the gospel. Where have you been, Paul? Peter could have brought up Paul's own past failures, right? Paul, who are you to say anything to me? Weren't you the one who was giving your full-throated support when they were killing Stephen and murdering Stephen? Weren't you in charge of the coats when they were hurling stones at him? And now you think you're going to come and oppose me to my face? Who do you think you are, Paul? You better back up, Paul. You don't know me. 
I'm deep in these Jerusalem streets, Paul. Ask Malchus. You come after me, I will straight up cut your ear off, Paul. I still got my blade, Paul. Who do you think you are confronting me with this stuff? But you know what? For all that we know, Peter received it. In fact, Peter goes on to write in his writings, if you read the books that Peter wrote, he talks about Paul and that how Paul actually is, the things he writes should be on the same level as scripture. They are inspired. So who has permission to confront you? You need to give someone permission in your life to confront you. Here's the homework assignment for this week. Find someone that can has permission when they see something in your life that's out of order, that they have permission to tell you what's out of order and you won't cut their ear off, all right? You need to find somebody that can tell you what's wrong and you're not gonna get defensive, but you're gonna listen to it because we all need confrontation at times. Now, what's the context for this confrontation? Because it's really important. So Peter has gone back to some old ways. Peter is saying one thing, but he's living another. And Paul calls it out for what it is. It's hypocrisy. The Jewish people in the Old Testament, right, were the people from whom God made a covenant with. He chose them as the representative people of God on the earth. And there were certain Jewish laws or commands that kind of marked out their uniqueness. It was the sign that they belonged to God, right? Their dietary laws, the day they worshiped, uh, circumcision law. So in the Jewish worldview, these there are Jews and then there's everyone else, right? There's a clear distinction between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And non-Jewish people in the Bible in these times are called Gentiles. Now listen, I'm a Gentile. Probably most of you watching today are Gentiles, meaning you are not an ethnic Jew. But even though that's how God's plan started, yes, he did choose the Jewish people. Yes, he did give them these, these things that marked them as unique. It was never God's intention that only Jewish people would be God's people. Paul writes about it in the book of Ephesians. One of the results of what happened on the cross is that God again comes and creates a new people and that new people's called the church. And we are a new man and the new man is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. God has expanded his family to all the ethnicities of the world. And now us Gentiles, we are included in God's family because we are in Christ. This was always God's intention. God chose Israel not to exclude the world, but to bring about salvation to the world through the Messiah, which would come through the Jewish people. Now, here's where the confrontation comes in. There were people, there were people in this church in Galatia who were trying to make Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians. Let me say that again. They were trying to make Gentiles to become Jews in order to be Christians. Both Jews and Gentiles are in sin before God and need a Savior in Jesus Christ to be saved. Therefore, it is by faith in the Son of God that we are saved. But this, is, this was something that Peter historically struggled with, okay? You can read in Acts 11, right? Peter is up on a rooftop one day, he's praying, and he has a vision. And the vision that he has is of unclean animals falling out of the sky, falling out of the heavens, unclean animals to Jewish people, things they weren't supposed to eat. Remember the dietary laws. So falling out of the sky, 
the Lord tells him, Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. That's a great instruction from the Lord. I love that one. Like, that's what, that would be a wonderful vision from heaven. And uh, how awesome would that be, right? Like, if, if you're telling somebody, man, I was praying today, and God just showed me something. I looked up, and coming out of the sky, I saw bacon. I saw sausage. I saw baby back ribs. I saw Boston butt just falling out of the sky, and the Lord told me to eat it. Now, that would be, I would, I would receive that word from the Lord, okay? But Peter tells the Lord, no, I will not eat these things, Lord. These are unclean animals. And God rebukes Peter and says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. Now, of course, this vision, it's not really about food. It's about Gentiles. The Lord was calling Peter to go to a man's house whose name was Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and to preach the gospel to him. But for a Jew to be at a Gentile's house and to eat with him is a big no-no. You don't do that. Why? Because Gentiles are unclean, and they can make you unclean just by being in their presence. So let's get back to the book of Galatians and what's happening here. Peter is in Antioch, all right, and he's visiting the church there, and he eats with Gentiles because the Gentiles who are in Christ are now God's people. But when some visitors come from Jerusalem under pressure, Peter revolts back to his old ways, his old habits, and he refuses then to eat with Gentiles. And what it does is it brings confusion. It's affecting some of the strongest believers in the, there in Galatia, even in the Antioch church. It just it is affecting believers, namely Barnabas, who's a, I mean, he's a huge leader in the church. So I want to say I'm not making an excuse for Peter, nor am I making an excuse for anybody who's watching today. But Peter often reverts back to his old ways when put under pressure. And you know what? Peter was the very leader of the church. He was the head of the church, the leader. So it's amazing when we're put under pressure we see what comes out of us, and, and sometimes we revert back to old ways, and, and, I, and, and here's what the enemy, the devil, likes to do when we fall, when we revert back. He'll say, see, you're not really saved. You're not really changed. You're the same old Peter that you've always been, and this is why it's so important for us to hear the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. You know what? No. Maybe I did revert back to an old way, but I confess that sin. I repent, and I forsake it. And I confess Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. And actually what Paul is doing here for Peter, he's confronting Peter with the gospel. Peter, he's saying, you're, you're not that old guy anymore. You're, you're new. This is what the gospel says about you, Peter, that you're a new creation in Christ. Peter, we can't go back. There's no going back to old things. Those old things have been torn down. So come on now, Peter. We are in Christ Remember who you are. Remember whose you are and act out of that identity. This is what in, in Christianity, in following Jesus, you are actually becoming who you already are. When you, when you get saved you, and, and you start following Christ, we are becoming who we already are. Who are we? We are children of God and we are learning to act like children of God. There's a story about Princess Margaret, who was the sister of Queen Elizabeth. When she was a little girl, she was sitting next to her mother on a platform, and there was a huge crowd in front of her. And this was her first time to give a public address. And she was very 
scared to talk in the mic in front of the crowd. And her mother leaned down to her and just said, Margaret, you are a princess. Walk like a princess. Talk like a princess. What was she saying? Be who you are. This is who you are. Act like who you are. When we are in Christ, we're a royal priesthood. You're royalty. You're a son or a daughter of God. You're a child of God. So we walk like God. We talk like Jesus. I'm a child of God. I have authority. I have victory. I have joy. I might not feel it, but this is my identity. We are becoming who we already are. Let's keep going. Galatians 2, 15. Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself a transgressor. Now, in my last point there, I talked about our identity. But how are identities formed? One thing I think that is essential to identity formation is actually language. Language. The things we talk about, how we talk about it. Do you know that every specialized form of learning has its own language? Every specialized form of language has its own terms. And if you don't know the terms, then you're not going to understand what people are talking about. For example, have you ever been about, around a bunch of lawyers? Or have you ever been in a courtroom? They have a certain language that they speak. And if you don't understand what, if you don't understand how to speak legalese, you don't know what's going on. But they understand each other because that's their culture. That's their identity. It's a specialized form of learning that has its own terms and communication and language. But if you don't learn the language, you don't know what's going on, right? So if you're in a courtroom and the judge pounds the gavel on the thing and says, let's take a short recess. Well, if you're one of my children, you might be looking around for a playground. Why? You don't understand what the word recess means, or it has a different meaning to you, but it's different in that context. So every field or profession has its own vocabulary. You know, I remember the first time I heard someone say the doctor's report came in, the scan came back negative. Well, in my mind, I'm like, oh no, it's negative. Everyone else in the room is celebrating. They're like, woo, yeah, it's negative. And I'm like, sad. I'm like, what's going on? Why are y'all celebrating? It's negative, because in my mind, negative means bad and positive means good. But when it comes to a doctor's world, negative is good and positive is bad. These are things you need to know. It's language. Everything has its own language. And we must learn the language or we're not gonna understand it. Uh, Dr. Dan Tomlin says this. He says, language is more than communication of words and ideas. Language forms cultures and ideas. Language is essential to identity. It means, it is the means by which shared values are preserved and transmitted. Christian language, that is, biblical and theological terms are essential to the formation and enculturization of new believers. In other words, Christian language is essential to discipleship. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because today, 
as you move into Galatians 2, we're moving into some language that every believer needs to understand. And the word that Paul uses here over and over is justified, justified, justification by faith. If you don't understand what that means, then you're gonna miss what Paul is talking about and miss a very important aspect of the gospel. And so over this week and maybe next week, we're gonna learn some language, some theological language. And you think, oh, he's trying to sound high and mighty and theological. And no, I'm not, I'm not. I just want you to understand the scriptures. I want you to understand what the book is saying. And, and he said, oh, he's just, you know, just give me normal speak. We're not theologians. Actually, we're all theologians. Theologian is just, theology is just the study of God. So we're all wanting to know God. We're all wanting to learn to know God. So these theological terms are important. Every term is a compressed truth. That means a word has, it's got, there's a lot of study. There's been a lot of thinking that goes into that one word or that one phrase. It's like a suitcase. If you're packing it full of stuff and you pack it all in there and you sit on top of it and you zip it up, well, it's one suitcase, but when you unzip that thing, when you unpack that thing, boom, all these clothes start coming out. And that's what these theological terms are. They're compressed truths that when you open them up, there's a whole lot of thought and thinking that's gone behind that word. And so here is the first in the book of Galatians, here's the first theological term that you need to know that's important, and it is justification by faith. Justification by faith. What does it mean to be justified? Well, if you just think about it in natural terms, when you want to be justified, what does that mean? It means you want to prove yourself right in your actions, all right? You want to prove yourself. You want to give perspective on why you did what you did to prove your point. So let's say today you're supposed to meet someone for lunch at 12 o'clock and you didn't show up until 12.15. All right, now that person is mad at you because you're supposed to meet them at 12 and you didn't show up and it could really offend them. And they could say, well, you're not a person of your word. You don't care about my time. Why would you be this late? And when you finally get to lunch, what would you say? You'd say, hey, I'm you would justify your reason for being late. You say, oh, I'm sorry I'm late, but my preacher at church was long-winded today, just kept babbling and babbling on about something called justification by faith, and that's why I'm late. So what did you just do? You justified yourself to that person. You tried to make right from your perspective on why you did not do what you said you were going to do. So the question is, how do we prove ourselves right before God? How are we justified before God, the creator of the universe? Actually, Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible, possibly the oldest book of the Bible ever written, Job 9.2, he asked the question, who can be justified before God? It's a really good question. Because who am I? I'm Chad Harris. I've only lived 36 years. Who am I to question the Almighty who stretches out the heavens and hangs the earth on nothing? Who am I to bring my case before God and make my own self right by something I've done? But yet, all the time, people and ourselves, we try to justify before God our actions. We try to give the excuse on why we did what we did and how we were proven right in that. But you, but you know, the law of God is the law of the universe. And it's a law that I've broken. It's a law that you've broken. And 
It's not in this chapter, but the whole purpose of the law was to show that you are in no way actually justified before God. In fact, you stand guilty before God. And, you're, and, and so what are you going to do about that? The law shows us that we're all guilty before God. How are we going to justify ourselves before God? And even just on a natural level, deep down inside, whether people admit it or not, they're seeking to be justified in this world. Or let me say it like this. Everyone is seeking to be accepted. Everyone is seeking acceptance. They're crying out, accept me, accept me. The need for acceptance within our soul is proof that there is something fundamentally broken on the inside of us. If, you know, we think if I work hard enough, then I'll be accepted. If my kids get into the right school or they become the star athlete, then I will have succeeded and I'll be accepted. If I'm a certain size or get in a certain shape, the sense of shame I feel will be healed and people will accept me. If I live my truth and I'm brave and the world then will accept me. Or if I could just find the right person, I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life and I'm lonely. If I could just find the right person who would love me for me, then I would be accepted. But, but we think all these things are going to justify us or we'll find acceptance. But the truth is what's really fractured, what really we need to be justified in more than anything is a relationship. And that is the relationship between us and God. That relationship has been fractured and it messes up our whole identity and who we are. Because if I don't worship God as my father, then that means I'm no longer a son and, or maybe you're no longer a daughter. You see, it's if we worship God and put him where he belongs, then our identity's in the right. But if that relationship with God is fractured, then how are we going to do that? We need to be justified. The problem is not with God. The problem is with me. How can I fill the gap between God and myself? And the answer to that is you can't. <laughs> you can't. There's nothing you can do to be justified before God. So this is where justification by faith comes in. And this is the good news of the gospel. I want to give you a couple of different definitions for justification by faith. Here's the first one from a guy named Warren Wearsby. He says, justification is the act of God whereby the believing sinner is declared righteous in Christ Jesus. That's good. I also like this one. It says, the same thing with a, a little bit different angle from Michael Bird. He says, justification is essentially a forensic declaration. And let's stop for a second. What is forensic? Think of like courtroom, forensic scientists or forensic criminology. What are they doing? They're trying to prove through facts and science in a courtroom. So forensic is courtroom language. Justification is essentially a forensic declaration of being in a right relationship with God, a relationship established and sustained by God's saving righteousness. So what does it mean to be justified? To be justified is where God, God changes your relationship status with him, your status. You know, on Facebook, it gives that thing where you can put your relationship status. Some of you have, it's complicated. And, uh, but right now on my Facebook, my relationship status is married, married to Ashton Harris. And you know what? Even on my bad days, even when I'm not a great husband, even when I do something and I mess up, even when we fight, 
that status remains the same. The status of our marriage, of our relationship together, has nothing to do with my performance. The status is we're married. Legally, we're married. In the eyes of God, we're married. I'm married to Ashton. That's our status. Well, the status with my father, with God in heaven, is this. My status is child of God. This is the good news of justification by faith. Even on days when I don't measure up, even on days when I don't do everything I'm supposed to do, even on days when I fall and trip up and sin and fall short, guess what? My relationship status has not changed in the eyes of God. Why? Because I am in Christ. I am secure in my status with God today because it was never about my performance to begin with. My performance, even on my best day, is not enough to fill the gap between me and God. My performance was never enough for me to be justified in the eyes of God. I actually don't have the resources within myself to justify myself. Only one person has that, and his name is Jesus. How does the, how does the gap of justification feel? You have to keep reading. Galatians 2.19. This is where it gets good. It says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, there is a lot right there, but it is so, so good. First of all, let me just say, I'm justified by faith, meaning I'm in a right relationship. I'm in a right status with God today. And it's not that God is pretending that I'm righteous. It's not that God is pretending that we are righteous, even though we're not. It's not some sort of legal fiction where God just kind of gives us a free pass and he winks at us and he, he lets us on in. He's going to let us into heaven and wink at us even though we're really guilty sinners. No, that's actually not what Paul is saying. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. So it's not just that Christ died on my behalf. He didn't just die for my sins, although he did. But actually, Paul is saying, my life is hidden in Christ. And what that means is when I believe in Christ to be my righteousness, that I am actually on that cross with him. I am participating in his death. And my sin and my condemnation for that sin, Jesus vicariously takes on himself. And so that is what happened on the cross, there was a price for sin. There was a price. There was a fracture in our relationship. And Jesus takes it on himself on the cross. And I'm actually, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm actually on that cross with him. And so my sin and my guilt, all of it was taken on that cross. And so that is the death of Christ. But it's not just the death of Christ. It's also the resurrection of Christ. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. And then he turns around and says, but now the life I do live. He's saying, there's something that happened when Christ died, but now I do live a life because Christ is alive. So this is about the resurrection, right? And this is what Jesus says in Revelation. He said, I died, 
but behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to death, hell, and the grave. So when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was Jesus's vindication, meaning that God raising Jesus from the dead was God's way of saying Jesus was right the whole time. And his accusers that put him on the cross were wrong. Truly, he was the perfect son of God. Again, if my life is in Christ, then I too was raised with Christ. Therefore, I am vindicated just as Jesus was vindicated. What is true of Christ is now true of me. I am in a right relationship with God as a son of God. Christ is righteous. Therefore, I am righteous as long as I am in Christ. Christ was justified. Therefore, I am in Christ. So now I am justified before Christ. I am, God's not pretending that I'm righteous. I am actually righteous in the eyes of God today. Honestly, this is so good, it's hard to believe. I actually had to text a professor at the seminary and share with him what I was going to say because it was so good. I didn't, I was like, dude, am I preaching heresy? Is this really what the Bible says? If so, that is really good news. Super good news. Michael Bird says it like this, Jesus's obedience and faithfulness in his vocation as son enabled him to execute his role as the second Adam. And as the new Israel, he was obedient where Adam and Israel failed. Jesus's obedience qualified him to be the sacrifice who could redeem Israel from humanity and from their alienation from God. Jesus is so good. This is why he's the only way. This is why he's the only way, the truth, and the life. This gift, this grace. And so Paul is telling Peter, no, Peter, you can't go back to the old ways of trying to make yourself right before God and with how well you perform. How many good deeds do you think you can do to be justified? No, justification is, he says, it's this forensic status. It's a legal status before God. Your status before God because of Christ is you are right and you are righteous in Christ. Justification is eschatological, right? That means end times. That means that what's coming at the end. And when I say justified, I don't mean you're going to be justified one day when you get to heaven, but you're justified now. You're heading to a court case. You're heading to judgment one day, but you already know the verdict before you get there. Your eternity is settled now. And you're, you already know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict is your status is you are righteous and it's declared in advance of the court date. Justification is effective, meaning God changed your identity. He changed your status. Therefore, the change in your behavior will follow. Do not think I'm preaching today that we have a liberty in Christ that is a license to sin. No, it's not a freedom to do whatever we please and still think we are saved. No, to be justified in Christ means you are free from sin, but a slave to Christ. He purchased us. He redeemed us. Justification, therefore, leads to transformation. Paul has no category in his mind for an untransformed Christian. You have to change because God has already changed you. He's changed your identity. God doesn't wink at sin. God condemns sin. God hates sin. The cross is his judgment against sin. So by faith in Jesus, my sin has actually already been condemned on that cross. It's already been taken care of. It's already been judged. 
But the resurrection of Christ is God's acceptance of Christ. God, who was for Jesus. And if you are in Christ, now God is for you. And if God is for us, then who can be against us today? This is what it means to be justified in Christ. God looks at your status, your relationship status today. And when he sees you, he sees what's true of Christ is true of Chad. He's righteous. He's accepted. He's a child of God. You can't get this anywhere else. You can't get that acceptance. You can't get that love. You can't get that identity in anything this world could ever get you. You can't try hard enough to be accepted. It never works. You have to trust and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel. That's Galatians 2. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray that, Lord, that the revelation of justification by faith would would fall in our hearts. It wouldn't just be something in our mind, but it would be something that we realize in our spirit. And it would change us. It would transform us. We would be so ecstatic, overjoyed at what you did on that cross. So Lord, we ask this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, we love you and we will see you soon. 9 and 11 live or 10 right here on Virtual Church every Sunday. Have a great day.